This morning I want to take a look at um, the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Primarily we'll be preaching from that, so it would be helpful if you just take that out. It's in your bulletin on page 8. It's in the Pew Bibles on page 957 if you don't have a Bible with you. We all know the saying, those who don't learn from the past are doomed to what? Repeat it. Um, there's another saying that I came across this week I've not heard before. It's from a poet named Steve Turner. History repeats itself. It has to. People don't listen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul wants us to listen to history. The history of Israel so that we will not repeat the mistakes they made. And so he recounts the story of Israel to help new Christians at Corinth resist the temptations that they're facing in their day. Friends, biblical history is not just something to study or to learn about. It's something to learn from. God has written these things down to us for our instruction. And Paul says that two times in this passage. The things that happened in the past, the way God dealt with His people in the past, are examples for us today. And so we need to listen and heed these stories. The Christians in Corinth lived in um, a kind of sin city of the ancient world. It was a prosperous city, it was a port city, but it was also filled with Idols, temples, and prostitution. The patron goddess of Corinth was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. This was a city much like many cities in our day, in our nation, that was enamored with hedonism, pleasure-seeking, and sensuality. And so what was going on in Corinth, again, new Christians coming out of that lifestyle, having heard that in Christ they are free, there was a temptation to misuse their freedom and to go back into the lifestyle from which God had delivered them. And so Paul is issuing them this warning based on Israel's past. And really, I think it's a two-part warning. As I study this passage, I wanted to get to the encouragement that Paul has at the end of it in verse 13, but uh, my sermon kept getting longer and longer as I studied the warning, and so we'll save that for next time. The encouragement. It's coming. Be here next week. But here's the warning. It's a two-part warning. One is a warning against a certain kind of attitude. And then there's a warning against certain actions. First, the warning against an attitude. The attitude is one of spiritual presumption, or you might say overconfidence. Again, it's this notion that because I am free in Christ, I can then live however I want. Or it's an attitude that says, because I've experienced spiritual blessings or God has used spiritual gifts in my life, then I'm immune to spiritual danger. And to such a person, the apostle is saying here in verse 12, which I think is the key verse in this passage, 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That is the point of the passage. That is what Paul is wanting to get across. He does not want these Christians to fall. On Friday, we took our kids to a walk in a, at a state park. It was a beautiful day, remember, on Friday. And as we're going along the trail, we're going up into a hill, and, and there were some steep falls on one side of the trail. And I kept saying to little three-year-old Sam, watch out, don't get off the trail. Now, that was when he would walk by himself. Half the time I was picking him up, but when he was by himself, walking on his own, rather, I said, watch out, don't fall off the trail. And I was reminded of a time when one of our daughters was very young, and Josie and I took her on a hike on a trail. And we got to the top of the trail, and there was a lookout over a cliff. And then there were these wooden rails, this fence, to protect people from going over the cliff. And as we neared the lookout, I said to her, do not, whatever you do, cross over the fence. She had a stubborn streak, a rebellion, a rebellious streak. We looked away for a second, and then we looked back. Where was she? She was on the other side of the fence waving at us. She was about two or three steps away from the edge of the cliff. I froze. Mama Bear swooped in and <laughs> scooped her up. It was at that point that my hair started to turn gray, and it has not stopped since. But because of her stubbornness, and she was young, ignorance, she was only a couple of steps away from tragedy because she wouldn't heed the warning. Paul, in these first four verses, is trying to get these Christians to heed the warning. Those who are tempted to cross moral boundaries, those who are in danger of falling, he says, okay, let's remember our history here. The people of Israel experienced incredible spiritual blessings and privileges. And let's look at some of them here. He recounts them. Verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That is the cloud of God's glory. The visible manifestation of the glory of God was with them in this cloud. How often have you thought to yourself, if only I could see something of the presence of God, something visible, something tangible, something real that's visible that I could see. They saw it. They had it. And yet, most of them turned from the way of the Lord. They experienced the visible manifestation of God's presence in the cloud of glory. They passed through the Red Sea, he says. This incredible miracle of walking across the floor of the Red Sea with water piled up on both sides. Verse 2, he says, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. See, Paul sees the Exodus as a kind of analogy of, of Christian baptism. The Israelites were baptized in, into Moses in the sense that they were following him through the Red Sea in order to be delivered out of slavery. And when we're baptized as a Christian, we are called to follow Christ, who is our Savior. He says in verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food. They all experienced this 
provision from heaven, the miraculous manna from heaven, spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. God provided, again, miraculously in the desert, water that they needed to live from a rock. And then he makes this interesting connection between the provision that God gave them in the desert and the presence of Christ. Christ was with the people of Israel. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So they experienced great miracles. They saw the visible presence of God. Christ was with them, strengthening them in their wilderness wanderings. And yet, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The NIV translates it this way, their bodies were scattered over the desert. In spite of all the goodness of God that they had experienced, in spite of all the blessing and the privileges that they were given by God's gracious hands, they turned from the Lord and He judged them. And only two of them entered into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Again, I think part of the attitude that was happening in Corinth as you read the rest of the book is this idea that because I'm free in Christ, all things are permissible for me. That's actually a motto, a slogan that you see repeated in 1 Corinthians. That's what some of the people were saying. I'm free in Christ, therefore I'm free to do whatever I want to live however I want. Other people might have become overconfident because of their spiritual gifting or experience. This was a church that prided itself on spiritual experience. Still others may have thought, because I have been baptized, And because I partake of the Lord's Supper, because I eat spiritual food and drink, then I'm okay with God, and I don't need to guard myself against temptation. And to such people, Paul says, he issues this warning, lest anyone think he stand, take heed lest he fall. We are most vulnerable to fall when we think we have nothing to worry about. What does the Scripture say? Pride comes before the fall. I read a pastor who was talking about visiting a parishioner in his church who was an outstanding businessman, an outstanding citizen in the community for to all external appearances. He looked like he had it all together as a Christian businessman. He owned an oil drilling company in Texas and real estate, and he had a fleet of barges. And He called his pastor, and he was in a crisis with his family. And so the pastor went to his office, and there... He said in the office was an expensive portrait of this man's wife and kids. But the pastor also knew that this man had a mistress tucked away in a condominium in the city. And the man said to the pastor, I don't know what's going on with my family. Particularly he was concerned with his teenage son who was rebelling. He said, I was baptized as an infant and I was confirmed and started taking communion at the age of 12 and each year I give generously to... Support the church budget. I fulfill my pledge each year. And I did the same thing for my son as my parents did for me. He's been confirmed. He's been christened. I don't understand what's happening here. And it was an opportunity for the pastor to tell this man, it's not enough to participate in the privileges. It's not enough to 
partake of the outward ceremonies of the church, the question is, what's going on inside of you? Where is your heart? Those things can, obviously, they are means of grace that strengthen us in our relationship with God, but the relationship is the starting point. How is your heart? He said you need a relationship of trust and obedience to God. This is a wake-up call. A person can attend church on Sunday and experience the inspiration of the church service, the encouragement of the fellowship, regularly partake of the sacraments, but Monday through Saturday live as though they have no commitment to Christ. And to such people who think that I'm okay spiritually because I've participated in the church in that way, Paul is saying, wait a second, remember your history. The people of Israel participated in spiritual privileges and blessing. And yet God judged them because they were turning from them, from Him. Don't take God's blessings for granted. A person can be confident in their spiritual strength because of their experience, their spiritual experiences and spiritual gifts, and they can become complacent. And I've seen that in the church, that somebody is particularly gifted, and they're put forward, and they share these gifts, and people are built up, but then something's going on in their private life. They're not guarding their private life, and it comes out later. Have you heard about this? Have you seen this? We see it all too often. People who become complacent and start dabbling and crossing boundaries, they see how far they can go, and Paul is issuing a warning, you're stepping backwards to the edge of a cliff. It's a warning about an attitude here. And then Paul warns against particular actions. There are four actions here that he identifies, or four behaviors that he is warning the Corinthians about. And these attitudes and behaviors are with us even today. First is the sin of idolatry. Again, he looks back at Israel's past to make a point about the present. And he says in verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written, or as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now that's a quote from Exodus uh, 32. You remember when they made the golden calf? Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, one of which is, do not make an idol. And the people of Israel are saying, this is taking too long. Where's this Moses fellow? Let's just get on with it. How about we make our own God? And then he can lead us the rest of the way. So Aaron, why don't you do that? Take care of that. This Moses fellow, let's forget him. He's taking too long. Uh, Let's just go on and adopt the idols of our neighbors and, and move forward. And they had a uh, party in the presence of this golden calf. They ate, they drank, and God was certainly not pleased. The people in Corinth were tempted by idolatry. They were tempted to worship these idols that were everywhere. There was the temple of Aphrodite I already mentioned. There was a temple to, I won't name all the temples because There were very many temples, but you had a temple to Apollo, you had a temple to Zeus, you had a temple to Poseidon, you had temples and shrines and statues all throughout the city of Corinth. They were as ubiquitous as McDonald's and Starbucks and Walgreens today. You could not get away from them if you wanted to. 
And not only were they everywhere, visibly everywhere, but they were part of the social fabric of their life. And I want you to get this. There was a great deal of social pressure on these Christians to join in temple worship. And here's how it went. In the temples, there were dining rooms. This is where people went to dine together. And so they would be invited by their friends and family and business partners. Why don't you come to the temple? We're having a dinner. But the problem was that in the context of these dinner parties at the temple, you made a sacrifice to the god or goddess of the temple. But think about the social pressure that these folks faced. You know, we're having a birthday party for my son. We're going to celebrate my son. It's going to be at the temple. We'll have meat, have good wine. Why don't you come? I don't know. Well, what's the matter? I'm a Christian, and I'm, I'm only supposed to worship Jesus. Oh, you think you're better than all the rest of us? You grew up with this, and now you think you're better than us? What's wrong with you? You feel that, that pressure? We all feel it, even today. We don't want to feel that pressure. We don't want to feel awkward. We don't want people to think that we're better than them. And Paul says to them, you've got to draw the line on going to the temple and having dinner. Because if you do that, this is later on in chapter 10, you're participating in the worship of demons. And I don't want you to participate in the worship of demons. Everybody else was saying it's no big deal. Paul was saying this is so spiritually dangerous. I don't want you to be part of it. Draw the line. And, of course, we don't, we're not tempted to worship idols of, of stone or metal. But you know, of course, that idolatry is worshiping any created thing rather than God. Putting anything other than God as an ultimate concern in our life. And so an idol can be success, status, money, sports, family, health, my body, ministry. Anything that is an ultimate concern above God becomes an idol in our life and we sacrifice to it. Paul says, don't be idolaters. Watch out for religious syncretism. Brothers and sisters, watch out for religious syncretism. Worshiping Christ and then dabbling in other religious practices and rituals. And people say it's no big deal. Watch out for that. Mixing in a little Eastern religion, New Age mysticism with Christianity. It's becoming very vogue in our day. I saw a book the other day, it's newly published, and the author was talking about being spiritually fluid. Spiritual fluidity. Because there is no core truth of who God is. We can just take different pieces and go with the flow. Do not engage in idolatry. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's a reference to something that happened in Numbers 25. The men of Israel, it says, prostituted themselves with the women of Moab, the daughters of Moab. This was a city, Corinth, that was awash in sexual immorality just like we are in our society. Awash in sexual immorality and the temptation is everywhere. Why? What's going on? What's underneath that? There's a link between idolatry, turning from the true God, and sexual immorality. I heard somebody say, when your God changes, your ethics change. That's what we're seeing in our nation. The Christian philosopher Dallas Willard explains the connection between idolatry 
and sexual immorality this way. Listen to these words, please. The human body becomes the primary area for pleasure for people who do not live honestly with God. Sensual pleasure gives the greatest kick with bodily violence a close second. This is something that young people are so tempted to engage in because they want to feel something. They want to feel something. But the problem is the feeling has diminishing returns and there's addiction and bondage that follows and destruction. Dallas Willard says, if we're not living in the goodness of God's kingdom, then sensuality through the body is what is left in our kingdom. Brothers and sisters, that is at the spiritual root of what's happening in our culture today. People have turned from God and have turned to themselves, to their bodies. How can we handle this? How can we handle temptations when it comes to sexual immorality? Well, we should do what Joseph did. Remember the story of Joseph in Potiphar's house? And Potiphar's wife likes what she sees when she sees Joseph, a handsome young man, come into her house and she's used to getting what she wants. And she says, why don't you come over here, Joseph, and lie with me? And he fled. He got out of there and he left behind his garment. And that's what we are called to do, brothers and sisters. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from watching things that stir up sexual immoral desires. Flee from reading things that stir up sexual immoral desires. It leads, the immorality leads to heartache, pain, guilt, bondage, shame, and addiction. It leads to suffering in families. Christ has come to set us free, and so we can't dabble with sexual immorality. And then Paul says we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Israel continually tested the patience of the Lord. They continually turned their back on His commands. And they tested over and over again the patience of the Lord. Paul says we must not do that. And then the final sin is something that, as I read this and studying this passage, I'm kind of shaking my head along with these other things, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing, yes, yes, and then, uh uh-oh, grumbling. Wait a second here. Let me read that translation. Let me look that up in the Greek. Does that really mean what I think it means? Grumbling, murmuring, complaining. <laughs> he puts it in the same list as these other prevalent kind of uh, sins that, uh, that we understand are so wrong. Scandalous sins. And here is grumbling. Those who grumbled, he said, were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a reference to an angel who executed God's judgment in Exodus 12:23. The people of Israel often were grumbling and complaining. They complained against God. They complained against their leaders, Moses and Aaron. They at one point complained that God had called them out of Egypt. Here they were slaves for centuries. They've, the one thing they wanted was to be free from Egypt. God leads them out of Egypt through the, through the leadership of Moses. And then finally they start to when the, to- the going gets tough, they start to complain against Moses and against God. And they said, it would be better to go back. Maybe we should go back to Egypt. That was better then. This was too uncomfortable. They grumbled and they complained. What's underneath that? Why is this a sin? Well, because it's a lack of gratitude for what God has given them. <laughs> he did these marvelous things for them. And it's a lack of trust. It's a lack of trust to trust the wisdom of God. 
And so I had to ask myself a question. Have I grumbled this week? <laughs> How about you? Grumbled about your family? Grumbled about the weather? Your work? Your health? Financial stress? You need to pay attention to that temptation to complain instead of to trust. To murmur instead of to express gratitude. Paul says we must not grumble. So, this is, um, this is a kind of a sobering and grim passage. Pretty heavy stuff. Not easy to hear. Not easy to preach. But let me just say this as we wrap things up. This is coming from a place of love. Paul, the apostle, loves these people. He has given thanks to God in earlier chapters for his work among them. He does not want to see them fall. He does not want to see them uh, suffer spiritual discipline and judgment in their life. In our Gospel reading, when Jesus says, those who refuse to repent will perish, that's the voice of love, friends. That's the voice of Christ. When we said to our little girl, don't cross the fence at the edge of the cliff, that was out of concern and out of love. And so Paul loved these people. He didn't want them to fall. Just before this passage, Paul, Paul says, hey, I'm included here. I've got to watch it myself. He says, um, I don't run aimlessly. I, I need to be disciplined like an athlete. An athlete exercises self-control in all things. And, and so I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. But listen to what Paul says. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Here's something that those of us who preach need to hear. Lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. This is not just about the congregation. This is about the preacher. We're in this together. This is a warning we all need to hear. And so, remember our history, brothers and sisters. In spite of all the blessings that Israel experienced, they were judged, they were struck down. Why? Because Paul says they desired evil. This is an issue of the heart. What are we desiring? Let's check our desires. Do we desire God? Or do we desire the things that the world says are okay, but God says are dangerous, are not, are sinful? are harmful. Let's look at our hearts. Are we overconfident, thinking that we are somehow immune to spiritual danger? Let's remember the history lesson. Heed the warning. And remember this is coming from a God who proved how much He loved us through the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Let's pray. I do ask you to do that, just to take a second here, a couple of seconds to to check your heart, your desires, your affections. Think about those behaviors that Paul is warning against. Lent is a season of reflection. Lent is a season of confession and repentance. What is God calling you to confess and repent of this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that... Uh, that oftentimes wounds us, but it wounds us in order to heal. It uh, challenges us and calls us to live the life that you have called us to live in Christ. It's uncomfortable, God, but it's necessary. And we trust and know, because you're a God who's revealed yourself through the cross, that this is coming from a place of love. Help us to hear, to heed, and to obey. Through your grace and your strength, And in the name of Christ we pray.
Amen.